Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Um, now today we're, we're doing a little bit of a twist. We're going to be talking in the history um, area. And um, this this really caught me by surprise. Excellent book, I would say excellent read. Only uh, I've been listening to it. I, I do audio books, uh, as people know. <laughs> I'm, I'm my eyes are going. Um, but uh, the the book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, and it's the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. And um, it, it really hit me that it said. America's most notorious pirate. So, of course, you know, it, it, I have to figure out what that means. And so um, here we got sitting with us the author of the book, Eric J. Dolan. Thank you for coming. Thanks for inviting me. So, Eric, um, wow. Um, this is a kind of um, a different type of story. We do a lot of history, and it's always about... Um, lately, it's certainly been about Egypt and, and um, you know, different digs and ruins and we get into religion and all this stuff. Um, so this is refreshing for me for history. I like this. Um, now, what made you, uh, what gave you the bug to get into this? Uh, pirates. 
Well, uh, this is my 13th book, and all of my books have been on pretty dramatically different topics, although some of them are woven together with a bit of a maritime theme. For this book, I had a couple of ideas, and I decided to try something a little bit different. I pitched my ideas to my two kids, who at the time were teenagers, Lily and Harry, and when I mentioned the possibility of writing about pirates, because I'd always been interested in pirates but didn't know a lot about them, their eyes lit up and they said, Dad, that's it, you have to write about pirates. And I got really excited because, as I said, I've written 13 books and neither of my kids have read any of my books. So I figured that this is my one shot. And I'm happy to report that after the the, the book came out, my daughter has read the book and she enjoys it. She's a senior in college. And my son, uh, who's a freshman in college, has not read it yet, but he... He's committed to reading it maybe in the next couple of decades, so maybe I'll get him too. <laughs> but that's how I got interested in it. That's, of course, not the only reason I wrote it. Uh, I, I always pick topics I don't know a lot about because I want to be excited while I'm doing the research and the writing, which takes up to two years. And uh, once I got into this and started reading about pirates, I was just absolutely fascinated by how important they were in American history and colonial history in particular. And also, it was very exciting to separate the myth from the, the reality and, and sort of see how these robbers of the sea operated and what they did and where they went and whether or not they got the treasure that they so desperately wanted. It just was a fascinating story to Oh, oh, I bet. And when you say that, too, when you say something you don't know about or very little about and you go into it so you can do the the, the research, there's something mm-hmm. um, excellent, I'd say, about uh, fresh eyes on something. Because when you're not coming from a bias of having an opinion on certain things, you just jump into it and you learn it as if brand new. So that's a very uh, good way to write a book. Yeah, I agree. It definitely, uh, you don't have any preconceived notions and, uh, you can uh, either take or, uh, work against or decide that it's not, that the received wisdom is not correct. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you find that when you go through older books, like when you were doing research and up to doing your book, um, you must have checked out other writings about uh, the different oh, yeah. pirates and stuff. Do you find that um, th- there's always a certain bias in the writing that comes from the age it was written? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, a lot of what I'm uh, reading is uh, primary material, so they're letters written at the time, diaries, newspaper accounts in the 1600s and in the early 1700s. A lot of it is also secondary sources, books that were written in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, even up to the present. And, yeah, a lot of authors have uh, biases. When you read a lot of the information from the time, of course, it was being written mostly by those people who were being plundered by pirates or affected by pirates. So they definitely had a negative opinion about pirates, which was warranted. But you don't often get the pirates' perspective because very few of them, or actually none of them, sat down and wrote their memoirs after they were done pirating. And then you read some of the later books, and yeah, there were there were clearly authors who had an axe to grind. Either they were arguing against uh, pirates because of what they did to the societies of which they were a part, or what you tended to get in the 1800s and 1900s, and even sometimes today, is a romantic 
romanticization of pirates because that story is more, perhaps more intriguing and compelling in their eyes. So they play up some of the mythology or the romance about pirates uh, to make the book maybe more compelling to readers. I don't think that's necessary because I think that the actual truth of what pirates did is more compelling than any movie on a silver screen or any uh, fictional representation of pirates you might read. Yeah, I was going to say that. You know, and and this you've probably been asked this question a ton of times, but I've got to do it because it's something that that, that well, no, it just bothers me. Uh, well, what I mean is, uh, how come? Like, like when you even when you mentioned it to your kids, pirates and the light, and the, everybody's excited, and uh, we talk pirates, and and it's they're all they th- they're thought of as really kind of good criminals, almost like Jesse James, you know, like the western, the old westerns, all those all those you know people that were robbing and killing people, but we almost idolize them, and pirates yeah, it- in the same. It's no, you're you're absolutely right, and it's hard to put your finger exactly on what is is going on. Uh, part of it is that people just, some reason, love to read about or hear about or romanticize the bad boys and girls or men and women of history, the murderers, the the, the people that have done a lot of horrible things, bank robbers. They become larger than life. Uh, characters looking in hindsight, even though that those people, the people who are romanticizing those characters would probably not want to encounter any of those characters in their actual life. And there's also something romantic, uh, at least with pirates, with the notion that, you know, maybe you throw, you're, you're not happy in your job or you're, you know, sitting on land and you're bored with what's going on. And just the abstract thought of getting in a ship with a bunch of other men, going where you want, when you want, plundering at will, getting treasure, getting rich, hopefully, drinking lots of rum and wine along the way, and then having your way with women in ports up and down the coast. I mean, in an abstract set, sense, some people might view that as being a little romantic. I actually don't, but that's not the reality of piracy at all. And also another thing that happened with pirates is uh, starting with Treasure Island or even a little before that, and then in the 1900s when we started, Hollywood got involved, there were a lot of these swashbuckling movies in the 30s, 40s, and 50s about Blackbeard, Long John Silver, and other pirates, and you had these dashing leading men like Errol Flynn who got his start in a couple of pirate movies, and they they came across as, you know, good-looking, uh, rakish rapscallions looking for love and treasure on the waves, and they were somehow endearing and even heroic in a sense, sort of standing up to the man or standing up to government and taking what they wanted. Uh, so that went a long way in creating this romantic image, which is fun. I mean, there are pirate festivals all over the country, and people love dressing up like pirates even if it's not 100% accurate, and saying arg and hi matey and shiver me timbers and drinking rum and having a grand old time. Just just a couple of weeks ago during Halloween, a five-year-old girl came to our front door dressed as a perfect little pirate, and I was so excited to see her. I gave her extra candy. 
<laughs> well, see, you know, well, well even the, look at look at the the Johnny Depp movies. I mean, there's five. Or oh, six absolutely, of them and they're crazy. They're so busy. They're, you know, everybody goes. So yeah, there's a definite yeah. thing, but I I think there's kind of a um a miss to this because uh, the reality yeah. is it it wasn't. They they weren't all good looking, well groomed, well dressed, well spoken, and standing up for 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 the lady against the man and and taking what you oh, need. Yeah. There was a lot of terror involved in this, and that's sort of something that doesn't really get addressed. I think there's a lot of terror. There was also a lot of disappointment. Pirates were very much like gamblers who go into a casino and they have an over expectation of success and an underestimation of failure because <laughs> they look at the there were some pirates that did and got away with it and a lot of the pirates that went into the business so to speak looked at those stories and said hey that's going to be me but the tr reality of it is that a very small number of pirates got uh, rich or even comfortable, and even fewer got to retire with their riches. It was a relatively short career. Many of the pirates were killed in battle or hanged on land. There were there was something on the order of 400 hangings during the time that I'm talking about, just in the 17-teens and 1720s throughout the Atlantic. So uh, pirates, in the abstract, they might have thought they were going off to make a killing, but in reality they often didn't. But there's one important exception, and this is probably the most fascinating thing I learned in working on this book. Before 1700, there were these pirates called the Red Sea Men who left from the American colonies. They were by and large American colonists. They left from the American colonies and they went into the Indian Ocean and they attacked Mughal or Muslim ships that were transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And those Ships were full of money and pilgrims going on their annual hajj. And those Red Seamen would get a lot of treasure in many instances. And they would come all the way back to the colonies, and they would be welcomed back in the colonies because they were the fathers, sons, and brothers of the people who were in the colonies. And this was a time at which the American colonies were on the edge of empire. They felt they were neglected by the mother country, England. They were starved of currency, starved of exotic East Indian goods. So here were these pirates that they were often related to who were going halfway around the world attacking, quote-unquote, infidels and heathens, non-Christians, bringing their treasure back home for the benefit of everybody in the colonies. And that was just a fascinating time and part of the Golden Age, the earlier part of the Golden Age, when, in fact, a number of pirates did get fairly wealthy and were able to retire. They didn't look at piracy as a profession or a lifestyle. It was just an opportunity to make some money and then get out of the business. But that was very different from the pirates that cropped up in the 1700s, like Blackbeard and other pirates that people have heard about who were attacking American ships and English ships as opposed to attacking Indian ships in the Indian Ocean. So, so there are different elements of piracy that takes place during the Golden Age, and you have to follow the money because when you benefit from the pirates because they're bringing you money or goods, you love them. When the pirates are attacking your ships, you hate them. So following the, the money trail is really important 
And just as is the case today, it was the case back then that, that money talks. Money is very is a very powerful factor and when it's in play, it allows a lot of different kinds of people to rationalize what otherwise might be viewed as very bad or illegal behavior. But if you're benefiting from it, hey, the pirates aren't so bad. <laughs> so, so now the golden age, and when it, when it went up to the 1700s, there, that seemed to be the change where you, yep. you say that it becomes more like the Blackbeard and where they're go- yep. going after American and uh, British ships and stuff. What created that change? Like what made them go in that direction? Well, basically, uh, in the late 1600s, when all these pirates were going to the Red Sea, it got England finally really upset because they were threatening, the pirates were threatening the very valuable East Indian trade, which was a major foundation of the English economy. So finally, England uh, clamped down on those uh, renegade colonials, including the governors who were in cahoots with the pirates and got kickbacks from the pirates. But finally, England really clamped down by passing stricter laws, uh, not allowing pirates to be judged by juries of their peers, but rather to be judged by juries made up of officials who are more likely to find them guilty and hang them. Uh, They sent more warships over to the American colonies, and they also sent warships into the Indian Ocean and clamped down on the slave trade which in the Indian Ocean, which had a tangential effect on on piracy. So by 1700, uh, they had been largely successful in clamping down on Red Sea piracy. And then after the War of the Spanish Succession, which ended in 1713, there were a whole slew of naval men and privateers who were suddenly put out of jobs, and many of them turned to piracy. Other people rose up against despotic captains and turned to piracy. But this time, the Indian Ocean was sort of closed off to them because of England's efforts. So they did the next best thing, which was attack merchant shipping that was leaving the colonies and transiting to the Caribbean and also back to England. But since now the pirates were seen as Uh, dangerous raiders, not as these commercial angels bringing money into the colonies, they were persona non grata, so they didn't have, they couldn't just uh, sail into Boston, Newport, Philadelphia, or uh, New York, because they were wanted men, whereas before 1700, they often could come back to those ports and they were welcomed. So it just became a very different environment for them, and they became increasingly desperate and more on the run because uh, the forces that were arrayed against them were quite powerful. Well, well, in 1713, um, why not just go back home and get a regular job? <laughs> that's a, well, you know, that, that's a really interesting question, because think about it. For as long as there have been humans, there have been thieves on land. There have been people who have been willing to break the law, to take things from people that don't belong to them. And as long as people have been on the ocean, there have been pirates, and there are pirates to this day. So it's a really interesting question. Yes, there weren't great opportunities on land for a lot of these mariners who were thrown out of work after the war was over. I mean, tens of thousands of naval men were suddenly 
given their pink slips. You know, we don't we no longer need you. The war's over. Now, a lot of them could have gone back to back home and could have been farmers or merchants or whatever, and uh, you know, been law-abiding. But what made a significant number of them, thousands of them, decide to throw in their lot with other pirates in such a dangerous occupation? It's almost a psychological question. Uh, why have there always been people that are, are willing to break the law in the expectation of making a killing, in this case, plundering a, a ship? And a significant number of people decided it was worth the risk. But you have to also keep in mind that there were, just look at the Navy, there were 50,000 men on naval ships during the War of the Spanish Succession. At the end of the war, almost 30,000 of them suddenly lost their job. Now, only a fraction of them became pirates. So most people did go back home, did go to their communities and try to pursue other opportunities. But back then on land, there were not the greatest uh, occupational opportunities available. And there's a parallel in another book I wrote about whaling called Leviathan, the History of Whaling. A similar thing happened in the mid-1800s when whaling exploded in uh, the United States. They needed a huge number of people to man these whale ships, and they started digging deeper and deeper into the dregs of society or, you know, very uh, people that had very few other opportunities. But even that being said, there were people that would go out on whaling voyages for four years, and they may make the equivalent of a couple of pennies a week. They could have made more money on land, but they were still able to get people to go on those whale ships and expose themselves to danger or possibly sinking by shipwreck. So it is an interesting question. Why are there always people who, instead of taking the safer and more legal route, which is not the whaling example necessarily, but for pirates and and becoming pirates, it's a... Uh, it's a really interesting question. <laughs> Maybe you should have a, psych- a psychologist come on to uh, inquire into that. Well, it would be a tough change working at the Burger King drive-through when you've been on a pirate <laughs> ship for years, right? And taking yes. orders and all that. You know, I, I, it would drive me nuts. Wow. So uh, now, did did these pirates? Okay, different groups. So you had a ship, and you had a captain, and a and they had a goal in mind, and of course, it's about money and wealth and gaining, um, gaining it. Um, did, did they know each other quite well? Did they fight with each other? Did the groups, uh, did did the pirates kind of join with each other? Like, how how are the relationships with all the different major pirates out there? Yeah, a lot of the pirates, especially when there were uh, these locations that they would repair to like in the indian ocean a lot of pirates instead of coming back after each voyage they would go back to a little island off of madagascar called saint marie and they they would careen their ships clean their ships divide the booty have sex with local malagasy women uh drink and plan their next voyage so at at times there may have been as many as a thousand pirates on this little island of saint marie and many of them got to know each other and the same could be said of Nassau in the Bahamas, which was a pirate redoubt in the mid-17-teens uh, before it was shut down by the English in about 1718. 
So, yes, many of the pirates uh, knew each other either by reputation or actually had come into contact, and sometimes pirate crews would shift between pirate captains, and sometimes pirates would gang up and attack uh, some the quar, you know, victims together and then divide up the booty. But most of the time, a pirate captain would have his own ship or maybe a little fleet of ships, like Blackbeard had up to five ships at one time and almost 400 men under his command. And they would go off and look for prey on their own. And if they came across another pirate ship, you know, they didn't attack the other pirate ship. There was sort of a brethren of the coast kind of thing going on, which started in the mid-1600s. And so they felt they were all in it together, but they were all in it for themselves in terms of financial rewards. But sometimes they teamed up. Yeah, it's just it's it's really interesting. So who did you find to be the most notorious in your research? <laughs> um of of this of the seventeen hundreds, who was who was the one that was really um kind of the uh the, the, the biggest uh, brutal man. Funny, I, people, your listeners will probably immediately think of Blackbeard because right. he had this reputation as this notorious, fierce pirate. But, you know, that was a lot of that was public relations after the fact. Sort of, he was not a particularly fierce and notorious, notorious, but he wasn't that fierce. There are only two instances known of him physically uh, his opponents, in one case, it was just whipping a man on board a ship. And the other case is when he was fighting for his life, when British Naval Lieutenant Robert Maynard and his men went fighting and his crew off Ocracoke Island. And ultimately, Blackbeard ended up on the losing side of the battle and had his head severed and hung from the bowsprit of a sloop. And then they pitched his headless body into the water where supposedly it took a few laps around the sloop before sinking from sight. So, so Blackbeard, he did some pretty dramatic things. He blockaded with almost 400 men and a number of ships. He blockaded Charleston Harbor for the better part of a week. But in the end, when he died, he had not amassed too much of a fortune and his behavior had not been out of character with a lot of other pirates. But if you want to go to the most notorious Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lowe, Captain Edward Lowe in the early 1720s, he kept under many, many ships, but he was sort of a statistic kind of guy. He liked to torture and kill some of his victims. One of his signature moves was cutting off people's lips and ears and roasting them before forcing the victim to eat their own flesh. And there was one case in which he attacked a ship, and the captain of the ship uh, had a, a bag of gold and silver hanging over the side of the rail to, to a rope. He cut the rope so that the treasure fell into the water instead of into uh, Edward Lowe's hands. So Edward Lowe killed that captain and all 32 men of his crew. And he's known to have killed other people. He once, pirates oftentimes would, since many of them had mutinied and they didn't like the spot of captains, pirates would often, when they plundered a ship, they would ask the men on board the ship, has your captain been good to you? And if they said no, he's a horrible captain, they would often kill that captain. But uh, Edward Lowe was so sadistic that he took over this whaling sloop off of not far from Nantucket, and the captain, Nathaniel Skiff, all of his men attested to the fact that he was a wonderful captain. But Edward Lowe didn't go along with the prescribed pattern and give him mercy. He basically said to him, since your men say you're such a wonderful captain, I'm going to make your death swift. And they ran him through with a sword. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he was just a miserable, miserable character. <laughs> wow. There you go. And, and so... <laughs> So, what? Um, how did it all fall apart? Like, where where did it all begin to end? Well, it it really started to fall apart about seventeen eighteen, seventeen nineteen. That's when uh, Woods Rogers and a force from England was sent to the Bahamas and specifically to New Providence in Nassau, which was this huge pirate hangout. It's the one you know made famous in the TV show Black Sails and the one that people have always heard about. Uh, 
that force, he basically went there with, uh, he was giving out pardons from the king for pirates, so a number of pirates took the pardon and got out of piracy. But he had this large force that essentially uh, took over the, the Bahamas, got rid of all the pirates there, so they lost their one of their their hideouts, and that dispersed a number of the pirates. And from that point forward, there were more naval ships pursuing pirates. There were more colonial ships uh, that were armed that were pursuing pirates and in many instances were successful in capturing them. And also the colonies had a strengthened judicial system that was better designed than it had been before so that the pirates that were captured were tried, found guilty, and there were many hangings up and down the coast from Newport all the way down to Charleston, South Carolina. So the number of pirates dwindled slowly between 1718, 1719 until about 1726 when there were only a handful of pirates left, and that's one of the last major hangings of pirates of uh, Captain William Fly and his men who were hung in Boston right at the edge of the harbor. They had plundered a bunch of ships off the American coast, but then they found themselves with too many prisoners on board, and a couple of those prisoners conspired, rose up, killed some of the pirates, shackled Captain Fly and the rest of the men, brought them into Boston where they were tried and found guilty and then hanged. And when they were brought out to an island, Fly's men were buried, but Fly himself was hung up in irons on the top of this island so that uh, seafarers who came in and out of Boston Harbor could see him hanging there as a warning to them not to pursue a life of piracy. But by that point, that warning was hardly necessary because there were just very few pirates left. But of course, you have to keep in mind that didn't, that didn't end piracy. There was a big upswing in piracy in the late 1700s, early 1800s, both the Barbary pirates off the northwestern coast of Africa, and in the Caribbean there was a big outburst of Spanish piracy that drew the American naval forces uh, down to the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico to basically attack these pirates and protect American shipping. But I just focused on the Golden Age because I think it was the most it's the most amazing, most interesting, most dramatic, and probably most consequential period of piracy in history, certainly in the history of the United States and the American colonies. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Like, what do you, what do you when you say uh, had the, the largest influence in, in American history or at the time, uh, yeah. what exactly do you attribute it to? Well, it's both because before 1700, there were scores of these ships going to the Indian Ocean. They were bringing back hundreds and thousands of dollars or pounds of treasure, Spanish dollars and pieces of eight. And you have to remember the colonies were fairly small, so uh, this is a significant infusion of, of cash and goods. And also a number of the pirates that settled in the colonies, uh, a few of them helped defend the colonies against French privateers and other forces that wanted to do damage to different uh, American ports. So they had a big impact on American colonial life because they were integrally woven into the fabric of colonial life and, and brought with them plenty of, of money and, and force that had an impact. After the 1700s, they had a big impact because there were upwards of 4,000 pirates, and they plundered hundreds and hundreds of, of ships, 
and that had a big economic impact on uh, commerce, but it it also had an impact in terms of how the colonies and the mother country responded. All, all the other eras of piracy, the ones the Barbary pirates, they, they had a big impact because they took hostage many American ships, but that was more concentrated and I don't think as dramatic as the Golden Age and the piracy in the early 1800s in the Caribbean was annoying to be sure and uh, it was made for some good naval battles down in the Caribbean but again I don't think it was as expansive there weren't as many characters that we know about there weren't as many fascinating stories it didn't involve as many people and the final thing I have to say is it's because of what people have written since that time, the golden age. Even though it wasn't golden from the perspective <laughs> of those who were, were being plundered, the golden age of pirates is the single era that the most books are written about. And it's the one that, you know, when you see Pirates of the Caribbean, even Treasure Island, which is set in the 1750s, all of the tropes and the and the the, the storyline in, in Treasure Island really comes from the golden age of of piracy. Even though there are very few pirates, we don't know of any pirates that had peg legs during the golden age. There might have been, but that wasn't a very common thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no stair lifts. Hey, uh, so, so <laughs> when we, uh, now, now there's still pirates to this day. Yes. And there, there, have, been, there have been pirates, uh, as you know, there have as long as people have been going to sea and had anything of value on their boats, there have been pirates. There were Phoenician pirates, there were Greek pirates, there were Roman pirates, and uh, Chinese pirates, and there are certainly pirates to this day. Uh, Somali pirates are the ones that are most in the news, but this past summer, people probably read a number of headlines about the upsurge in piracy off of the Venezuelan coast. And the, the thing that sort of combines Somali piracy and Venezuelan piracy, along with piracy that still takes place in the Malacca Straits and, and other parts of the world, is when you have an economy in economic freefall and uh, people that are financially uh, in dire straits, some of them inevitably choose to uh, steal from others. And piracy is just stealing on the open ocean as opposed to on land and so just like the pirates of the golden age the pirates of today are driven in part by economic necessity and or desire but there are a lot of differences between the piracy now and uh, the time that i write about and unfortunately i think that there will be pirates uh, as long as people go to sea um, it's just a, a just like there are going to be people robbing banks or or stealing money for electronic wire transfers. I mean, there are going to be thieves with us and people who want to break the law, whether it's at sea or on land, as long as human nature is as it is. Yeah. Pretty, pretty. Back in the time of the Golden Age, how did people perceive uh, these pirates in general? Well, uh, well, again, if you look at the Red Sea men and before the 1700s, the colonists viewed them very favorably. In fact, they would call them privateers, which they really weren't. Privateers are people that are given a letter of mark or, or merchant ships, a letter of mark from the government during a time of war, giving them permission to attack the enemy combatants and bring those ships back and share in the plunder. It's called licensed piracy, but it was legal. 
in the colonies, they called these Red Sea pirates, they often called them privateers, even though they were attacking Mughal ships and England was not at war with uh, India or the Mughal nation. So it was, in fact, out-and-out piracy. Um, You know, in in the 1700s, again, they were viewed much less uh, favorably (laughs) by the the, the populace. Uh, Again, it depends on whose ox is being gored and and for the most part the uh, the emperors the 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 royal families of of the different countries and spain mm-hmm. and england and france and um were they just using these pirates to kind of get things done that they wanted in some cases yes i talk about one of the earlier pirates even though it's not part of the golden age sir francis drake who the english viewed not as a pirate but as a privateer he had been sent out by Queen Elizabeth I, the, the Virgin Queen. She had sent him out to basically attack Spanish treasure ships in the Pacific and bring back their their loot because Spain sort of owned, uh, due to conquest and, and other reasons, uh, most of the Western Hemisphere, and they found a huge amount of money in the mines and of Central and South America, and that made Spain one of the richest uh, countries in the world and the other European countries were very jealous of Spain's uh, windfall in the West. So one of the ways they could get even was by stealing from the Spanish. And even though the English and the and Spanish were at war for many, on and off for centuries, it seemed, uh, there were times when they were nominally at peace or not, not at war. And when Sir Francis Drake was sent out, they, they weren't officially at war. And Queen Elizabeth knew exactly what she was doing. When he came back, he was knighted. Uh, the Spain, Spaniard king looked at him as a pirate, but the uh, English viewed Sir Francis Drake as a privateer and one of Queen Elizabeth's sea dogs who uh, had brought glory and money back to the empire. So it just goes to show that uh, there was a, a phrase, I can paraphrase it, uh, Samuel... Taylor Coleridge said that nobody is a pirate unless their peers call them so. So basically, (laughs) it's how you view what somebody does that determines what you label them. And some people look at Drake as a pirate. Other people look at him as a hero and a privateer. So it was back and forth. And the Buccaneers, I also talk about the Buccaneers in the book, which are just pirates by another name. And some of them uh, did things where they were viewed negatively by the English and the Spanish, but also the buccaneers were a very valuable fighting force. And so the governors of Jamaica basically made tacit deals with the buccaneers saying, you can use Port Royal Jamaica as your, you know, your base. We won't arrest you, but if any nasty Spanish ships try to attack us and take back Jamaica, we expect you to defend us. So it was like a, a marriage of convenience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. So the, 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 during the whole time, you're, you're mm-hmm. going through research, you're reading, you're involved, and you're getting all this stuff. What was the most surprising thing you learned? There's probably two things. We already talked about it a little bit. The, the largest class of surprise really had to do with those 
Red Sea Men and what was called the Pirate Round. I, I just hadn't. I just viewed pirates pretty much as pirates of the Caribbean, sort of these rogues that were out there attacking, you know, enemies of all mankind, uh, feared by all, loved by none. But I was really shocked to learn about these pirates that operated in, in the Red Sea and how they were viewed by the Americans and how they were woven into the American culture and accepted and welcomed by the colonists, even though they often did horrible things in the Indian Ocean, killing people and, and stealing from them. The other big surprise uh, is how few pirates got rich, especially after 1700. You read about what these pirates would plunder from these ships. I mean, there are some pirate captains and their men who would plunder 30, 40, 50 ships. And you think, wow, they must be getting a lot of stuff. But most of those ships were either fishing fishing vessels or just ordinary merchants. Uh, very few of them had holds that were full of treasure, you know, gold doubloons or Spanish uh, pieces of eight. So it was it was kind of interesting to read about how many of their attacks only resulted in a minuscule haul of treasure. They they often took mundane things off of the ships they attacked, you know, clothes, cloth, iron nails, uh, cannonballs, masts, food, bread, hardtack, meat, wine, rum. But it was it was a few and far between were the pirates who hit it rich, yeah. won the well, lottery. <laughs> well, they they needed better uh, <laughs> better agents. <laughs> <laughs> So hey, yeah. did you see that Captain Phillips movie a while back? You yes. know, you know, yes. you know, five years ago, Tom Hanks. Now, is yes. that is that a traditional pirate today like scenario? Well, again, I just have to caution. I don't I don't write about Somali pirates, and I don't claim to be an expert in Somali piracy. But from everything I know about that story, it was a rather chilling and accurate reflection of what took place. These pirates from Somalia are often in small boats with machine guns mounted on the front, and uh, they were often able to take hostage these large tankers because the tankers were not heavily defended or defended at all. I do know, I gave a talk recently on my book, and there was somebody there who was in, he represents uh, tanker companies, he's a lawyer, and he said that things are changing pretty dramatically and a lot of tanker companies are uh, and cargo ships are hiring private defense forces armed men who are on board these ships and if you have men on board your cargo vessel that have machine guns or maybe grenade launchers or you know serious weaponry uh somali pirates who are in these small boston whaler like boats would think twice before attacking and probably wouldn't be successful attacking. So I think in s to some degree the tables are being turned and maybe there are fewer captures of large ships by the Somalis and being able to hold them hostage. But I'm sure they're still happening. But forget about the cargo ships. What about the pleasure boats? I mean, I, if I was in a 40-foot sailboat or 50-foot sailboat, I wouldn't uh, go anywhere near the coast of, uh, the, you know, the south, the uh, the eastern coast of Africa or different places around the world to the Molucca Straits because I'd be too scared of being 
captured and defenseless against pirates. So it's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of that way all over the world now. <laughs> yeah. You, you wouldn't want to travel. I don't, I don't want to travel near as much as I used to. And for all sorts of reasons, but yeah, there's that that the unknown has has taken the taken the waves. You know, everyone, you know, it's on everyone's mind. Yeah, and it's it, and there's a there's a reason it's on everyone's mind. Unfortunately, because we keep hearing stories about these horrible things. It just uh, the sea is. I, I, I don't want to call it, it's not the last frontier. I don't know if we have the frontier, but in the sense. Even though there is a law of the sea and there are laws that govern what happens on the sea and piracy is still illegal, when you're out in the open ocean and you're all alone and there's no policeman nearby, it just it's a, it can be a potentially scary situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes back to the survival of the fittest. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow, amazing. So now. Um, any influences you'd like to mention about when you uh, wrote the book and, and any other writers or contributors that you use that uh, were great support? Huh. You know, I, writing is a solitary uh, endeavor. I, I, I work, I'm a full-time writer. I work, I'm standing in my office right now, which is a converted garage, the old garage on our our house for years. I used to work in a basement. My wife decided I needed to see, have more natural light. I was starting to get moss growing on my head or something. So <laughs> we converted the garage so I'm up out in the in the daylight. Um, but influences. I read so many books on piracy, and there are a lot of great authors. Books that I really enjoyed, like David Cordingley's Under the Black Flag, Colin Woodard's The Republic of Pirates. Richard Zacks, The Pirate Hunter. I mean, I can go on and on. There are a lot of great books, but I, I wasn't in contact with these people while working on the book. But basically, it was me and all my sources, and the biggest support I had was my wife. My wife, you know, emotional support, financial support, and everything else. I, I couldn't be a writer without her and without the support of my family, my kids, and, you know, in-laws and my parents. So it's like a team effort, but... Uh, no, no individual. I, I used I, I used Harvard's Widener Library a lot. I, I had privileges at Harvard Widener Library, and for the people there, I and the local library, the National Archives in the United States, the National Archives in Britain. You know, people helped me there, but I I couldn't name any individuals that were particularly yeah. Yeah. Uh, beneficial. No, it's 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 all helpful. It all puts you together. Uh, uh, now, yeah. what have you got planned next um, after <laughs> the pirates? Well, I'm right. I'm already working on my next book, and it is a very different topic. Although it does involve the ocean, but as well as the land and sort of the edge of the land, it's a narrative history of hurricanes in America. So I'm going all the way back to Christopher Columbus and coming up all the way to the present, talking about the impacts that hurricanes have had on American history and the evolution of our understanding of what hurricanes are and how they operate and how we react to them. And it's just a fascinating story. I'm learning a lot uh, about hurricanes. I, I would say there's a lot to learn there and, and, yeah. and uh, so much to take in. Uh, yeah, that, absolutely. That's going to take a while to get 
that <laughs> that done. That's a lot. Yeah, well, I, I've got to get it done pretty quickly. I've, got, I've been working on it already, and I'm going to start. Come January, I'm probably going to hibernate for a couple of months and write around the clock. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's when I get my best writing done is when I have long stretches of time, you know, eight, ten hours in a row, then it really gets going. I don't like writing, you know, an hour now, an hour, four hours from now, breaking it up. It sort of ruins the train of thought. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, it's certainly been interesting, uh, a very enjoyable conversation. And, um, of course, now, if people want to get a hold of you, they want to tell you a story that they have, or if they have some information, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, I, I've got a website. It's just my name. It's www.ericjdolan, that's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And if you go there, you not only can see all... 13 of my books and read the introductory chapters to almost all of them and see the pictures of the covers. But you can also, there's a contact form that you can, if you, if you write through that using that, it goes right to my email. And I, I get plenty of letters through that emails and I respond. And if they're interested in this book, they can get it at their local bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it or online at, you know, anything from Barnes and Noble to Amazon.com to Books a Million and uh, you know, wherever you, wherever books are sold, you can get it. They even if they don't have it in stock, they can always order it. Yeah. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.